0: Welcome to this very special holiday week of Inside the Hive. I'm Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Hagan. Joe, here happy Thanksgiving.
1: Happy Thanksgiving to you. I'm very thankful.
0: I feel incredibly grateful this year. I feel grateful to our listeners. I feel very grateful to you and that we've gotten to know each other in this very strange world. Um, but it's been such a blessing.
1: We've been doing it right here with... These listeners, getting to know each other, them getting to know us, us getting to know them, taking it week by week, which is all you can do. Totally. And, uh, you know, we've gone through this incredible journey. There's been a lot of struggle. There's probably more struggle to come, but we're getting there together. And I have to say, sigh of relief as we feel like we can actually start thinking about the future as a definitive thing that's going to happen. Yes. That's new. Yes, That's new.
0: I feel like this is the first Thanksgiving in probably five years for a few reasons where I'm not going to be around a dinner table and everyone's going to be asking me for the skinny on the crazy that's happening. Um, Part of that is because I won't be around a big table of people this year. Yeah. Um, But part of that is because the world is just sort of normalizing. And that's a beautiful thing. And that's something we should all be very thankful for. You know what else we have to be thankful for?
1: Barack Obama.
0: Barack Obama baby. We have we're really lucky today as hosts and I I know you guys are going to love this as listeners. We have audio of an interview that Jasmine Ward, the the beautiful beautiful author writer did with President Obama for the newest issue of Vanity Fair and it's a an interview surrounding his new book which the sales just blew through the roof in the first week. I have not listened Huge. to it yet. Uh, my sister has been I mean, listening or read it. My sister's been listening to it and says it's like the most incredible thing. It's a 29 hour audiobook, which. Holy moly. Joe, did you record your own audiobook?
1: You know, I didn't. And I was just talking about this with my wife, Samantha Hunt, who is a novelist and does her own audiobooks, mm. which I didn't do. And she loved doing it. Ugh. But that's a lot of hours for Barack Obama to have logged.
0: I did my book, and I will tell you writing a book is very hard. Recording yeah. the audiobook, I thought was the hardest part because um, <laughs> you have to get every word right as it's written. Oh, yeah. and so they stop yeah. you if you like if you misuse a, a preposition or you make something plural or sometimes when you're writing something, it's not the same as reading it and so your mind just does weird things and changes things around and they will stop you and make you start again. Yes. So, I That's remember right. at the end of the day, my jaw was hurting, my throat hurt. And so, I can't imagine recording for 29 hours. That's crazy. No. But bless him. No. Bless this interview. I think it's so cozy and it really gets into such beautiful territory that I think is perfect for this week. It talks about um, sort of the soul of our country and uh, its president obama reflecting on where he's been and his presidency and his life and and the future of this country and jasmine Ward just did an absolutely phenomenal job and i'm so glad that we get to hear it uh i think it's such a beautiful thing and we want to get you right to it but but joe i just want to ask you before we get into that um how you're feeling this thanksgiving and and what you guys are doing and what you're grateful for this year
1: well i'm i'm grateful uh, that, you know, despite not being able to have a lot of visitors to the house, in fact, none, uh, you know, we still got each other. We've got our family uh, unit. We're going to be at home uh, getting the turkey together and just, you know, doing it as best we can. We're going to watch movies and be cozy and, and try to make it as, um, you know, familial as we can with the family we've got, right? That's what, we, that's what we're doing in America right now. Um you know, I'm thankful for uh, a lot of things. But one thing I, w- I am very thankful for, and I want to stress this to our listeners, you know, we've got this Barack Obama book coming up. You should buy that book at an independent bookstore. Mm. As authors, we both know that, you know, when I had a book out and when you had a book out, you get supported by these bookstores. Totally, And they're all struggling right now. And uh, so if you're going to buy that book... Buy it at an independent bookstore, or buy anything um, because
0: there's so much uh, consumption that happens this week. I've gotten 70 million emails just this morning about sales that are happening at retailers, and that's uh, that's great. We should support the economy. We should support all retailers, all of whom are hurting this year. But if you can be thoughtful, and I know that that everyone is going to do whatever feels good for their pocketbooks this year. It's a tough year, and everyone should do what's mm-hmm. right for them and their families. But if you can support a local store this week in particular, you know where your your dollars are going. You know who it's impacting because they probably rung you up at that store before. Uh, you probably know who the owners are. If you don't, I'm sure it's very easy to find out. And so, just just be conscious with how you're spending. Um, and also, um, just just generally this year, the thing that I'm thinking about is just how to be the most thoughtful, both in how I'm spending and who I'm spending time with visually uh, uh, digitally or outside in person and what I'm choosing to bring into my life. I think we're now at a point where we can stop and kind of pause uh, both because of the pandemic and also because the new cycle is changing. And I know Joe, we think about this a lot in terms of mm-hmm. what we're going to cover and write about, but I think everyone can sort of think about this. We That's can, have, right. we have the yeah. blessing to choose how we're going to spend our time. Now we don't have to be engaged in all the Mishigas anymore.
1: That's right. Hit the reset button. You can now filter for joy and not filter for fear and anxiety. Totally. Right? Fill, fill Think your about life. what you want. Be conscious about it. You've really taught me that this year, and I'm thankful for that, Ooh. Emily Jane Fox. You, you've you been really um, kind of uh, on this beat, which I appreciate. And, and you just profiled a um, somebody who has a shaman in the recent issue of Vanity Fair, which everybody should go check that out. But... You know, you've made me aware, and I uh, appreciate this, and I think our listeners do too, uh, about, uh, you know, thinking about ways in which you can be grateful. Mm. And so here is the week uh, that we have nationalized that idea of gratitude, and let's be grateful uh, for what we have here, uh, for each other, and uh, for this Barack Obama interview.
0: I agree. Let's get to it. I'm grateful for this. I'm grateful for you. It's my favorite holiday. Enjoy this episode. We can't wait to hear what you think about it. Read The written Q&A in Vanity Fair, the newest issue, it's online on The Hive. Jasmine Ward does a beautiful job. Thank you to Barack Obama, which is something we should all be grateful being able to say. Let's get to it.
2: Let's go. Are you still there, Jasmine? Yes,
3: I am. I don't know what happened to my my view.
2: That's okay. I mean, you've seen me before. You know what I look like.
3: (laughs) With the first one that was about humor i um I don't know, i guess i i wanted to ask you about that because it was such a surprise for me and i i i don't mean i don't i don't want to say that and like disparage your other work right but it um i don't know it was uh it was it was a surprise to me like you i i laughed out loud like really laughed out loud, not there's no hyperbole here several times during like my reading of of the book. And so, I don't know, I, it was such a cool thing to see happening on the page. And because I, you know, talk about how to use humor, um, you know, when I teach creative writing, right. I was just wondering like, if you, you know, if, this was some, if that was like a conscious decision on your part to incorporate it into your work, or if you learned how to do that through reading, because I, I, as I was reading, I looked at, like I'd get to the end of a section, and you tell a joke, well, not tell a joke, but you would say something really funny. And I was like, that's really good. Like, technically, the yeah. humor was working really well.
2: Well, that's that's good. I, look, I, uh, I'll say two things first. First of all, uh, Michelle is funnier than me. Yeah. So I have to say that. OK. She <laughs> insists that she is. And the reason she's funnier than me in, she's a naturally just a great storyteller. Part of it is also, uh, there's a rule in our household that she can tease me, but I cannot Mm -hmm. tease her and I've pointed out that's not fair. And she says, yeah, so what? And so, um, so she, I am often the brunt of her humor and the girls have picked (laughs) up on that. So at the dinner table, generally I'm the recipient of mockery and jokes. Um, the, uh, you know i think uh whatever humor comes through in the in the book
4: is a reflection of me trying to uh accurately capture my voice and the uh back and forth with my
2: family friends and Staff during this journey,
4: and um, I, I I think that you know all of us use humor uh, to some
2: degree or another to help explain the world mm-hmm. uh, around us, right um, you know i I think it was some literary critic. You know talking about Shakespeare, who once said that uh, tragedy is when you are in the middle of the story. Comedy is when you're standing outside looking at the story and and of uh, you know the human condition is can be absurd, and if you learn to laugh about it, then that helps you get through pain and hardship and difficulty. It's part of the reason why the African-American community has been the source of so much humor in our culture generally is because we've had to face up to the absurdity of things happening uh, to us that don't make sense, aren't fair, uh, uh, are are often tragic and heartbreaking and, and so, we empower ourselves by being able to pull out and, and take a bigger view of it. And, um, you know, I think I've, I've absorbed that. Uh, and that was part of how I managed to maintain perspective and um, take the work of the presidency seriously, or running for president seriously, but not take myself too seriously. Um, you know, uh, there's a scene I write in the book, which uh, I think is a story that had been told before by some others who were there. But uh, when we're debating whether we can still move forward on the Affordable Care Act and get it passed, and uh, my legislative director says, yeah, It's a really narrow path we've got here, depends on whether you feel lucky. And, you know, I say, Listen, where am I? He said, "Well, you're in the Oval Office." And what's my name? Yeah. Barack Obama. No, it's Barack Hussein Obama. I'm always lucky. Yeah. I always, I always feel lucky. And and but that was an example of of using humor at a time when you know, the stakes were incredibly high and we were feeling really embattled. Um, and that both. Signal to my team that look, you know, we have a chance to do something important. Let's try, Mm -hmm. and you know, the worst that can happen is we fail. But you know, if if uh, if we fail, uh, at least we know that we will have done everything we could, Mm -hmm. and and in some ways, (sighs) out laughing. About it, or some gallows humor about those situations, worked better mm. when you were dealing with stress day in day out the way we were than if you were, you know, trying to give some sober speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, all of which is to say, yes, Jasmine, I am funny. <laughs> I slayed it. Uh, the the. The correspondence, correspondence Dinner, that the the professional comics never wanted to follow yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I remember that and I am gonna agree with you that um that Michelle is very funny um funny. I, there's that part where you're pl- you where you go to the beach with sasha. And Michelle doesn't go. And then she says, like, that was her one aim. First lady to never be captured on film in a bathing suit. I chuckled. that one, I couldn't stop laughing. I was like, oh, my God, she's so funny.
2: Although um, she wasn't joking about that. No, she wasn't.
3: I could tell. I could tell. She was, no, was serious.
2: She was serious. She was all like, this is one of my main goals as first lady. I will not be photographed by the paparazzi in a bathing suit. And she succeeded. This is Inside the Hive.
3: I know that we, you know, we have a limited amount of time to talk. And I really want to ask you about characters and about empathy, that fourth question that I sent you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because because I just want to hear you talk about empathy. Because you explicitly talk about empathy several times in right. Promised Land, right? And um, so one of the things that I noticed as I was reading um, you know as I was like attempting to just sort of read as a reader and enjoy it but also sort of trying to read like a writer right and Mm -hmm. being aware of the of how you're writing the book and of the techniques you're using one of the things that I was really impressed by was how well you develop your characters like you, you do a really great job of like developing your main and secondary characters or just establishing establishing them in a few words when you first in, introduce them. Mm-hmm. And in those, like in that initial, you know, um, when you first introduce your characters, then there's a huge cast of characters. There, and, and this is from Rahm to Hillary, to uh, characters who figure, who are have like secondary roles, like Norm Eisen or, or Sonia Maria Sotomayor, but still, we when we encounter the, these characters on the page, every character, there's, you give us a very specific, particular impression of them from the first moment. You know that you give us sensory details about them. You give us hints about their personality and their motivation, and they're really vivid and really immediate. And I was struck by that. I thought that that worked really well. And so one of the, so I asked myself like, why? How do you think he's able to do this? You know, like how is he able to accomplish this? And then I. I was wondering if your capacity for empathy is part of what enables you to do that. You know? Yeah,
2: I, I, no, I, I, I think, look, look let, let, let me say at the outset that part of the goal of the book was to connect um, my personal journey with the public life that people saw. And I think so often when we uh, see a political figure uh, or we're talking about policy, we somehow think that's separate and apart from our daily lives. And what I wanted to do for the reader, particularly for
4: young people, is to give them a sense uh, of, uh, commonality
2: between their day-to-day choices, decisions, insights, hopes, fears, and what somebody who ends up being the president of the United States is going through—he he is a person like you who is interacting with people, who is trying to do stuff, is disappointed sometimes, is afraid, is uh, uh, you know falls short. Uh, has doubts. And and so in order for people to, to capture uh, that progression, that journey of me as a young person inspired by the civil rights movement through my early political career, all the way through the, to the presidency, that required people to have a sense of how I saw the world. And the way I see the world and it actually merges with my politics because uh, you know, what got me into politics was this belief, this sense that uh, we are, all of us, uh, imprinted with history and our gene pool and the particulars of our lives, but we also have something in common and it's possible for us to to really see each other and uh, hear each other's voices and find commonality in our experience and and that that is possible um, across gender and race and nationality and and sexual orientation and that that if America is exceptional in any way. It's exceptional because we are a country that is filled with people from every corner of the globe. And we are uh, forced to figure out how do we live with each other and uh, find common cause with each other. And, and so I think that the, the empathy you describe is central to my politics um, the 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 reason that I uh, got into politics was the sense that, uh, as as sh- as as shattering as the experiences of, of race and, and discrimination and slavery and Jim Crow and the the decimation of Native American tribes and uh, you know all that stuff there is still something in this country that says we can be better and we can learn to be more inclusive and see each other and, and uh, expand our definition of we, the people that's always been at the core of
4: my politics. And when I write, what I'm trying to do is reflect
2: how I see people in that same way that I, that I'm trying to, um, understand their backstory. I, I'm trying to get a sense of what's motivating them. What are the things that, that they feel, believe, uh, hope, fear that I can relate to? Uh, because if I can do that, it doesn't mean I'm going to agree with them on everything, but at least maybe they can see me. And, um, you know, it uh, it's part of, the challenge of our politics right now is that there's so so many forces designed to prevent us from seeing each other, right? Uh, and 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 to to label each other and distance and fear each other. Uh, and and I wanted to make sure that this book reflected uh, an opposite belief that that in fact uh, it, it, we we can know each other. You know, and and, and that's one, one very specific uh, example that I, I wanted to use was uh, the grassroots work that I did first as an organizer and then actually reflected itself in our campaign in Iowa. You know, I spent a whole chapter writing about how we won Iowa with all these young volunteers who were thrown into these rural communities. And And as I emphasize in the book, um, these young people, most of them in their 20s, uh, you know, these are black kids from Brooklyn or Asian American kids from California or, you know, uh, Jewish kids from Chicago. many of them had never been in a rural, white, you know, primarily farm community. And they'd go into these little small towns, but they would uh, go out there and they'd talk to people and they'd hear their stories and find out what it felt like when you got laid off from the plant that was really part of the company town, or they'd you know, hear a, about uh, some family that didn't have health healthcare and, and were struggling. And they made connections and established relationships and loyalty with people who were not like them and when we won the Iowa caucus, we won because hopefully people uh, related to what I was saying, but more than anything, we won because these young people had learned to see, hear, empathize with the people they were working with.
3: That in part, I think, is what readers want from memoir is they want, you know, us as writers to like slow down, open up moments in seeing with other people, you know, with us as a narrator and then with other people and begin to like assess, you know, who, who the people, who the people in that, in that moment were, were what they were feeling, what would they were bringing to that situation, why we perhaps acted the way we did, why they reacted the way they did, like the well, reader. And, and, and
2: that's, and that's the wisdom. Look, if you think about your own books, Jasmine, like uh, despite being African-American, I don't know what it's like to grow up in Mississippi or a, a rural part of the South. I, I, but when I read your books, I certainly don't know what it's like to be a pregnant young girl,
4: <laughs> black
2: okay. girl growing up in the South. Uh, the act of you uh, describing an interior life, makes me understand her and stand in her shoes and see through her eyes. And that expands my world. And that should inform how I interact with my own daughters, how I interact with uh, the people in my community, um, and hopefully informs my politics. So, So, you know, in some ways, I guess part of my argument here is that I think bringing a writer's sensibility uh, to politics is a valuable thing, because at the end of the day, uh, our public
4: life is really just a a story. If, If you think about Donald
2: Trump, he had a certain story he was telling about this country. I have a different story. Joe Biden has a different story. Kamala Harris has a different story. And and so we have these competing narratives uh, that are taking place all the time. Um, and, and I think that the, the, the insight, the wisdom, the generosity that you show in your books is part of what I want to inform uh, our political life as well. Uh, you know, if if we can understand each other in that kind of granular way, as opposed to just, all right, that's a white male, that's a Hispanic female, that's a rich person, that's a broke person. Um, You know, those, those categories in the aggregate can give you some data, can give you some insight into how the society is organized, but it doesn't really give you a feel for what's churning inside us. And, and, and uh, we're, we're, we're bigger than our, our various demographics and data points. Uh, and that's, I think uh, something that we sometimes forget uh, and, and, and part of why our politics can get so divided.
3: In creative nonfiction, Mark like we always say that you should, um, that you should make yourself into a Character, you know, like you have to think about yourself as, as a character and and think about what you're define how you're going to convey your defining characteristics. Um, but but I think that you know throughout a promised land, you you're so good at um, at um, at making the people that you write about, including yourself, seem complex and complicated and and um, and like multifaceted and uh, so capable of like all the emotions along the emotional spectrum. And, and I think that you know, that there's power in that because, because then the reader perceives you as a complicated human being, right. And the reader perceives the people that you're writing about as complicated human beings. And then, I mean, I believe that, that makes the reader feel sympathy for you. You know, that makes the reader think about, you know when they might have felt the same thing in their own life, in their own job, in their own you know family lives, right? So, um, so yeah. So I, th-
4: I think.
2: Yeah, that. Uh, no. Uh, well, I appreciate that, and and I and I do think that um, part of the advantage that I probably had in writing this book was having written an early book when I was pretty young, thirty-three, about. Uh, my journey to understand my father and m- my
4: heritage, um, uh, that was a useful exercise for me. Um, and uh, by the time I wrote this book 25 years later,
2: uh, you know, I had had a conversation with myself about, all right, where did I come from? What, uh cross-currents run through me? Um, you know, what are my demons? What are my fears? Um, and, um, and I think that there's a, there is probably more confidence uh, at, at the age of 58, 59 uh, in letting that show uh, letting readers see that
4: mm.
2: being less protective mm-hmm. uh, of yourself mm. uh, because um, you know, you've, 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 come to come to terms with uh, both your strengths and your, and your weaknesses. And, and I, and I wanted people to see that but once again, in part, because I want young people more than anything. I want young people to feel, confident in their capacity to move through the world, change the world, be agents of uh,
4: you know justice and and uh, you know let their voices you know shine through and uh, understand that
2: uh, our public lives, our communal lives are not something that you have to leave to somebody else. You are as qualified as anybody to uh, to talk about what is right and just, and and trust yourself in that. Um, and um, and so I wanted them to see this process of of you know, as I point out in the book. Yeah, I I, I wasn't like student body president. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I. I uh, wasn't somebody who uh, was from a political family. Uh, I, you know, the the inspirations I drew from were also young people like a John Lewis or a Diane Nash, when they were in their early twenties, taking on an entire system of Jim Crow uh, and putting themselves in in, in such severe danger. Uh, and, and I didn't duplicate that kind of courage and success, but in my own way, I said, All right, let me try this out. Um, I wanted people to see uh, the ups and downs of even a successful political career. Right? So I, I tell a story about how uh, being frustrated in the state legislature, I decided to run for Congress without really thinking it through and get whooped, uh, and how. Uh, I then went to the democratic national convention in 2000, licking my wounds coming off a loss. And, uh, you know, I, it's a good story about how I show up in LA turns out I don't have the right pass, so I can't really get in the convention hall. I've run down my credit card. I'm broke. I can't rent a car. Uh, I'm not on the list for the parties. I'm sleeping on the friends out. <laughs> oh, no. I end up leaving. And uh, four years later, I'm the keynote
4: mm-hmm.
2: at the Democratic National Convention. Yep. Uh, and, and sort of the, the bell of the ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the point is, I want people to feel that uh, that's those ups and downs of, of a public life which aren't so different than the ups and downs of all our lives, right? yeah. you know, we, we, we all go through uh, these, these, uh, these moments where everything seems to work and moments where nothing seems to work. Mm. Uh, and I wanted people to feel that uh, as much as possible. Mm.
3: So do you think that that's part of the reason why? Because my next question was about like this concept in, you know, in, in nonfiction memoir writing towards material that may be painful for you, you know, and writing towards it instead of writing away from it. Um, So do you think that's part of the reason why you, um, why you were so committed in, 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 in a promised land to like writing towards, um, you know, just uh, intimate sort of painful, you know, moments that you experienced from, you know, say like losing the, losing that election or, um, you know, there's a lot that you write about, like, how, like how difficult it was for you and Michelle to sort of navigate your relationship and your family life at the time, you know, at during this, you know, time.
2: Um, well, because because look, the, 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 that pain is 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 uh, is often.
4: Uh, some of the most profound. Uh, Experiences that we
2: have. Uh, it leaves marks on us. It leaves scars. It, it,
4: uh, uh, it shapes us. And, uh, you know, I, I, I want people to, to know that we all uh,
2: have in common Loss. We all have in common disappointment. Uh, we all have in common um,
4: uh, that sense of uh, things not being in our control that we thought were in our control, uh, and and I,
2: I again, I think that has to inform our politics. And um, our public lives. Uh, you know, I,
4: I, I, I talked uh, briefly in the book about uh,
2: Jeremiah Wright, who was a hugely controversial figure during my campaign, who was an extraordinarily gifted, complicated person. Um, one of the most gifted preachers I ever heard built this amazing institution that gave back in the community of the South side of Chicago uh, you know, did so much good, but he had a bunch of pain from the experience of being a black man who
4: had grown up in uh, the pre-civil rights uh, era uh, and you know went through the the um, revolution
2: of attitudes in the sixties and was still angry and hurt and in that way reflected the anger hurt scars pain of the black community and would then sometimes let that out in ways that uh you know weren't always on point um and the pain of me having to at some point uh, sever a relationship with somebody who I cared about. And then also to have to uh, deliver a speech on race that captures that complexity, which then led me to go back and tell a story about my grandmother, a white woman who had grown up during the great depression, who loved me more than anything in her life, but also told me, or I learned, was scared of a black man panhandling at a bus stop. And so in in both instances, what I'm doing is, is both capturing these two complicated people who were important in my life, um and trying to make sense of that, and trying to also describe the pain of me of, of uh, being surprised by them having attitudes in certain cases that I didn't agree with, but then still insisting that I still they're still part of me and and then trying to describe to the country that by the way, they're both part of America (laughs) and, and we we're going to have to learn how to uh, understand that and acknowledge that. Um, I don't get there if I'm trying to sanitize all those things, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, And it's important, I think, in the book for me to share with readers that those were difficult moments for me Um, that, that it was, Uh, uh, painful personally
4: Uh, it it wasn't just a a matter of coming up with a a, um, some simple morality tale uh, if you want to address race in America
2: Uh, it's all tangled up uh, and there are a lot of scars and pain and, and memories uh, and and that, it's one of the reasons why I think so often when you hear people say, well, we need to talk more about race. Sometimes I'm skeptical of those conversations where they are you know, these formalized, let's have a dialogue about race, because so often we actually avoid talking about the stuff that really hurts. Um, you know, and it's one of the, one of the, great values of literature is often we're able to access that pain more effectively. Um, and when I say literature, I don't, it doesn't have to be f- fiction. Um, I mean, obviously, Beloved and, and Toni Morrison's work does it, but A Fire Next Time by James Baldwin remains as relevant today as it did when he wrote it 50 years ago. It is searing and it, it is all about pain. Um, and, and yet ultimately is probably uh, as uh, necessary and, uh, in order to progress, we have to be able to internalize the things he, James Baldwin's talking about in that, in that uh, essay. Um, and, and be able to look at that squarely. Um, so.
3: This is Inside the Hive. You're very honest, um, you know, in your assessments, in the context that you give us, in the history that you give us, in your, um, in the way that you sort of communicate about what you were feeling at different moments in your emotions and like you're you're very, you you're very honest and i i read your first book which is you know your first book to me resembles a promised land just just in i guess in form and how um, i don't know like in a way and how like intimate it it is um so uh i guess i just wanted to ask like um how much freedom did you feel like you had in a promised land to be so forthright and honest and whether or not that was like difficult for you to navigate page by page as you attempted to weigh um, the worth of like sharing some insightful private fact or assessment and then while thinking about what the fallout might be right Right.
2: You sharing yeah you you know um I didn't find it difficult to share what I felt or thought. Mm-hmm. Um, for the reason I said earlier, mm-hmm. I'm 59. Mm-hmm. I've been around the track a bunch of times now. Uh, I, I, I said some, to somebody once uh, towards the end of my presidency, one of the, the, the great gifts of the presidency is uh, that you lose your fear because, look, I came into the presidency in the middle of what was then the worst financial disaster and economic crisis since the Great Depression. We had two wars. Um, I had to make a series of very difficult and uh, risky decisions uh, early on. Some of them worked. Uh, some of them didn't work as I had intended. Uh, I was, like all presidents, subject to you
4: know, uh, withering criticism at certain points uh, and second-guessing. And it, I survived it. You know, you, you look at it and you say, well, I'm still here. You know, I, I, I've
2: made some good calls. I've made some mistakes. Um, you know I, i've I've experienced losses as well as some victories, and lo and behold, although my hair is grayer I'm still standing and mm-hmm. and so uh, I felt uh, free to describe what I truly thought about a whole range of issues. Um, I think what was probably more uh, difficult during the writing process was um, how much I felt comfortable sharing uh, conversations I had had or uh, feelings others had uh, who I was close to. So with Michelle, for example, uh, obviously a a lot of the book is the story of um, our love and our partnership and the sacrifices she made for uh, the career path I chose uh And needing to be honest about the fact that you know she really didn't want me to be in politics uh and it hurt her in a lot of ways i I was helped by the fact that she wrote her book first,
4: mm-hmm.
2: though she had already put out some of that uh mm-hmm. so that uh you know it, it wasn't uh so much me uh you know pulling back the curtain she had already done that. I was just kind of given my perspective in terms of how I felt about uh, her distress around uh, some of uh, our decisions um, but but you know there are times where i as I was writing, I was like, well, this snippet of dialogue would that person feel comfortable with me sharing that uh, and, uh, and 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 uh, i I I, th- I think at the end what I the decision I made was that as long as I was generous in uh, in my assessment of their uh, outlook and what they were feeling uh, mm-hmm. then it was okay for me to share. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, now look, I, I, w- I want to be honest that, probably how I phrase things in the book might be different than how I would phrase things if you and I were just sitting around the kitchen table
4: mm-hmm.
2: um, y- you know uh, uh, if I'm talking about you know Mitch McConnell's filibusters blocking important legislation of mine uh, you know I'm probably more judicious in how I describe <laughs> that than if you and I were just talking I might. Yeah there might be a few, you know, um, expletives sprinkled in there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, yeah. so you know, I, was, I was, trying to maintain a little bit of uh, decorum.
3: But you did, you did. I, 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 I did. Cool best.
2: That. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: So, uh, you know, Joseph Biden, right. Recently won the election. election. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Hallelujah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> real full body relief <laughs> that I have felt over the past, you know, on Saturday. Uh so one of the things that, that I feel like I've noticed, um, and I've been thinking about it specifically because I've been reading your book, you know, during the past week, is I feel like people are more clear-eyed about in response to the election. That people, that Democrats, <laughs> I'll say, um, are uh, more sort of clear-eyed about the fact that um, how we have to be more civically engaged and civically minded, you know, and that and that everything is not, you know, just because one person is elected to this office, right, that doesn't mean that all of our work is done. I th- I, I feel like there's a difference in understanding. Now, right? That I saw that I, I don't think was there, and I definitely was guilty of it. You know, when you were elected for the first time, I thought, you know, it was so, it was this such it? a we're yeah, reckless thing, right? I'm like, oh, everything's great, right? Um, and and um, and and you wrote about that in a promised land, right? About how you you had a sense of double consciousness, and it, and you were sort of anxious about this idea that you know that people were sort of projecting their you know you you became a symbol in some ways and people are projecting their sort of needs and desires and wants and dreams it was like wish fulfillment all on you on you and you and you were aware of that and um because you were because you were clear-eyed about what the job would entail and the kind of work you know that Everyone really still had to do, still has to do. So, do 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 you? I guess I'm asking: Do you do you think that's true? Do you see a difference in our in our ability to be more clear-eyed about this? Um, well, like, I,
2: I, look, I I hope so. I mean, we, we always want to learn from our experience, and and, and part of uh, I'm glad you raised this, Jasmine, because because I really think uh, this is one of the goals of the book um, is is for people to uh, understand a little bit more about how our government works,
4: mm-hmm.
2: because I, I I do think that we have this sense that the president is a king
4: mm-hmm.
2: who we elect him and hopefully at some point her mm-hmm. and Whatever it is that they want to do, they can get done. And if something doesn't get done, it's because they didn't care about it. And part of what I try to describe in the book is the incredible number of uh, institutional roadblocks and barriers and constraints on even the president's power. The, the, the president is extraordinarily powerful, but so is Congress and so is the Supreme Court and so are corporations and so are governors. And we, we have all these different um, points of power, all these levers and buttons throughout our society
4: that help determine our direction. and. Uh, You know, oftentimes, I
2: think people, particularly Democrats, but I I think this is undoubtedly true for Republicans as well. um, Mm -hmm. They think, all right, we got this person elected. Mm -hmm. Now, when are we going to reform the criminal justice system? When are we going to... uh, make sure that we have universal daycare? Mm
4: -hmm.
2: Why haven't we immediately, uh, you know, uh, dealt with climate change? Mm -hmm. And when change doesn't happen fast enough, we have a tendency to feel cynical Mm
4: -hmm. uh,
2: and to feel like, oh, they sold out or, you know, they weren't really uh, paying attention to the things I thought they cared about and 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 disappointment and then disengagement sets in and part of what i wanted to do in this book and it's one of the reasons why i go into detail about how hard it was to get the affordable care act passed for example um and at the time there were a lot of democrats and progressives who said well this isn't good enough why don't we have a single payer plan why don't we have a public option Uh, there's still people who are uninsured even after the bill got passed it's not Enough, And I I try to explain, whoo, we we had to do everything and, and pull every rabbit out of a hat that we could to get 23 million people health insurance, because it turned out even with large Democratic majorities in the Senate, you had this thing called the filibuster in the Senate, which allowed Republicans to block. Uh, any legislation unless we could get 60 votes and that meant that we had to get every single vote we had Uh, and there are some conservative democrats from nebraska or west virginia or other places that um, might not agree with democrats from brooklyn uh, or san francisco about a particular issue and you're trying to manage all that and and Uh, I think the more we understand that, the more we will be effective in our advocacy, because then we can start saying to ourselves, all right, yes, we need to elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, but now we also need to make sure that we have a Democratic Senate and there are going to be two Georgia seats coming up uh, uh, in a special election that could give the Democrats at least... Uh, the tiebreaker uh, uh, to get legislation through. We have governors, we have state legislators. We saw this summer, this incredible outpouring of uh, activism around uh, criminal justice and and police brutality. And the fact of the matter is, is that the overwhelming majority of uh, criminal laws and prosecutions take place under state law, which means that if you really want reform, then you've got to have district attorneys who believe in reform and you've got to have mayors who are appointing uh, police chiefs who are willing to negotiate with police unions to make sure that their uh, training and accountability different than it currently is. And that's actually not something that the president uh, has any direct power over. The president can encourage it, as we did uh, after what happened in Ferguson. Uh, Occasionally, you can get the Justice Department uh, and the Civil Rights Division there to impose a, a consent decree on a particular jurisdiction so that it changes its behavior. Uh, But most of those decisions are are done locally. So the bottom line is that um, the more we know about how the system works, the more effective we are going to be in uh, actually bringing about change. That doesn't mean, by the way, and I try to emphasize this in the book, um, I did not shy away from or at least I recognized the fact that I was a symbol. And that symbol is important. Uh, you know, I was just seeing your kids and, and your uh, uh, niece and nephew and, and there, there was a generation of kids who grew up seeing an African-American first family in the White House. And by the way, that didn't just have an impact on African-American kids, it had an impact on white kids. Who took that for granted? It was not unusual to see suddenly uh, a person of color in uh, that leadership position, and that has value too. Right? It's not all about policy. It's also about spirit and inspiration, and you know. Uh, and 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 so um, I, I I don't denigrate the the symbolic. Role of my election, uh, I, I, th- I think that was meaningful. Um, it was one of the reasons I was inspired to run because I thought it would have some impact. Uh, but it, it is not uh, uh, by itself sufficient to change, you know, the history of, of discrimination and and uh, you know the structural inequities that have built up over. 400 years, uh, for that, you gotta look at budgets and you've gotta look at laws and, and, uh, and yeah, we have to be clear eyed about how difficult it is to move this society forward uh, and, and not be discouraged uh, when it doesn't happen overnight.
3: This is Inside the Hive. What do you want us to take from a Promised Land? If we had to take one big, you know, theme or one big idea or or is there is there something that we haven't talked about that perhaps you want the read, readers or the audience to take to I, take I, with them
2: i i think i hint at it in the preface mm-hmm. uh, that it, i hope when people read this in addition to thinking well this is a good story in addition to young people hopefully being inspired that maybe I too can get involved in public service in some fashion, even if it's not elective office, but I, I, I wanna be involved in, in uh, the course of our, our society. Um, more than anything, I want people to come away with a sense that I really do believe America is exceptional but maybe not for the reasons that sometimes we think Um, it's it's not because
4: we're the wealthiest nation on earth or we have the most powerful uh military on earth Uh, it's it's because uh uniquely among uh
2: great powers throughout history um we are not only a democracy, but we are a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy.
4: And that we have fought battles internally over several centuries now to try to expand the, the Number of people who can sit at the table, who, who
2: who qualify as we the people, black folks and poor folks and women and the LGBTQ community
4: and immigrants and uh, if if we can make that work, if we can learn to embrace each other
2: under a common creed and respect each other and treat every child in our care with, with, with uh, regard and concern, um, then that is what makes us that shining city on a hill. That, that's the example that the world looks
4: for. Uh, that American idea is worth preserving but it only
2: works if we acknowledge that the reality the the idea don't match and that what we can take pride in is not, Oh, it's always been great. And if you criticize it or you protest or you, you know, try to, uh, you know, uh, take down the Confederate flag that somehow that means you're un-American or you don't love America. No, 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 no. What, what, we love about America is the fact that we're noisy and we'll protest and we complain and we fuss and we struggle. And at each juncture then we become a little more just and a little more fair and a little more empathetic and uh, more voices are heard and more people have a seat at the table. and. And if we can keep on doing that, then we can teach or at least
4: set an example for the rest of the world. Um, And that's important because, as I say in my preface, um, the divisions
2: that play themselves out in the United States are not unique to the United States. Um, there are other countries that are struggling with racial issues. there are countries like uh you know, Northern Ireland where the people look indistinguishable but are just as bitterly divided historically around religious issues
4: uh, uh, there are you know uh, ethnic uh, you know, conflicts
2: in every corner of the globe. And as the world shrinks and cultures collide because of social media and the internet and, and, uh, you know, 24-7 television, um, if we don't learn to live together, we will perish. We can't solve big problems like climate change or global inequality unless we can see each other. And listen to each other, and
4: learn to work together. And I, I hope that um, anybody reading this book says it's worth us investing in uh, the promise of America, even as we understand that, you know, uh,
2: as as Moses understood and Dr. King, you know, proclaimed and uh, in a speech, just to, just right before he got shot, you know, we we may not get there, but we can see it. And it's uh, it's on behalf of uh, those beautiful children of yours and my daughters and children everywhere that we keep on fighting uh, to, to make sure they get there, uh, even if we don't.
3: Thank you very much. Yeah,
2: that was fun. It's great to see you. Thank you.